Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. This is part two of my conversation with Robert Cook, the founder of ThreeForge, a provider of data virtualization and visualization technology solutions. In the first part, Robert talks about his origin story, as well as his interest in coding, and some aspects related to how he loves to code, and so on. We continue the conversation when I asked him the question on what was the startup bug that bit him? And uh, he talks about how the urge to reinvent how software is developed has been the primary motivator, where he says that uh, by and large, maybe up to 90% of the code that is written is quite similar across teams and organizations, and how that can be the basis for reuse and also stability of the software. So his simple mantra is to solve it once, solve it well, and reuse it, which has also been the guiding principle in his company, 3Forge. He also shares a lot of other tips and the principles that he follows in his company, which is about abstracting many of the operations needed, for example, the user interface widgets and the experience to reduce the work needed to create and deploy solutions quickly. And the story of uh, why the name ThreeForge. And his thoughts on creating software for real-time processing versus batch mode processing. And he shares some very nice tips on defensive coding. And in a two-minute intro, it's probably a very, very good way to start defensive coding. We finally close with uh, how he manages his time and what stresses him. Listen on. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is probably uh, also a nice segue into uh, from being a developer. You know, what was the bug that bit you to start a company? Ah, yes. So I felt that I, I was moving from organization to organization. And um, at some point I was head of... Um, my last job before starting 3Forge was uh, head of architecture at um, uh, LiquidNet, which is a dark. I kind of could dip my toe into all the different projects that were being done. And that just really kind of exacerbated my feelings of how software should be reinvented, if you will, um, the approach towards software. So stepping back, my whole life I've been writing software, and I realized that the problems were 90% the same, or, or let's put it this way, from my employer's perspective, 90% of the money they were spending for me and my team to get the job was duplicative for the team next door to us solving a different problem. Mm-hmm. And I felt that if I could just identify that 90% reuse or that 90% duplication and build a platform to allow people to just 
take that out of the box, cut away that 90%, A, it it lowers the delivery time by leaps and bounds, right? Because you're not because that 90% is usually what you have to focus on in the beginning. So if I can get rid of that, people can start delivering right away. Um, there's way less code for teams to have to maintain. Um, and there is it's a much more reliable solution because you're only writing 10% of the code. I mean, the less code you write, the less likely there is to have bugs, kind of almost provably. <laughs> um, and so I felt that, you know, just just finding that and identifying and building this platform would get me there. Um, and, and like I said, as I went on and I got more and more use cases and I saw the same things over and over again, and each time, you know, frankly, I'd get paid a little more, but I'm solving the same problem over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, there's got to be a generic way to do this. It's extremely tough. I, 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 I'm not going to lie. It's very tough. It, was, it, it took a long time in, in thinking about this a lot and distilling things down, I think, to their kind of, again, core philosophies. But at the end of the day, if you're willing to kind of to, to, to break these things down, you can find a lot of repeatable things that you can just solve once, mm-hmm. solve it the best. And then it gets reused. Uh, and to me, the other thing is I'm, I'm kind of a performance junkie. I didn't actually answer before when I said there's the different things you can focus on, which is, you mm-hmm. know, maintainability, performance, and this net. For me, number one is performance. Mm-hmm. Performance, performance, performance every time. Number two, maintainability. And three, the amount of time it takes to write a piece of code, I do not care. In fact, if it takes me longer, I'm almost happy because that gives me something to do gives my team something to do i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go that far but you know it is it is having performance is critical and the thing is when you're writing code let's step back and say you've got 10 teams and they're each building the solution their own solution and they're doing that 90 percent over and over again it doesn't make sense for them to really focus on performance mm-hmm. unless their use case happens to be like high frequency trading or something that was really performance mm-hmm. focused and so they're not actually building the highest performance software, nor should they be. But for us, because I'm saying, look, we're going to build this, and this is going to be used in all of these use cases, and it's going to be executed trillions of times, we want to make everything as fast as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we end up actually building solutions that perform way, way better than people who go write it from scratch, too. And so it's like a win, 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 really. So it's logical. And I'll even go as far as to say that, um, you know, we're, we're getting we're getting very good traction. I, I mean, we have hundreds. I mean, right now we have thousands of people using our dashboard and hundreds of, of use cases. And I think that um, I'll go as far as to say that I think in a decade, the idea of not using a platform like ThreeForge, I think eventually we'll have some good competitors of it. There, there's got to be at some point. We can't continue to be the only one. It, it, it will not make sense to go and build things from scratch. I think it, it's, it's proving itself to be so much faster to build solutions and, and the likeliness of an outage goes down dramatically. All of these savings, it's, it's, it just makes sense. Um, and I'm going to go, I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm talking a lot here, but there's one more thing I want to say, which is I've, I, I loved studying the history of computers. And in mm-hmm. fact, we've got on our walls in the office all kind of the greats of, of, of you know, the significant um, contributors to computing. And I'll, I'll break it down. Like, we, we started off with 
you could almost call it like hardware sort of solutions. Like you even go back to like the loom where like you put the cards mm-hmm. in and it would like design the stuff. Right? It's very, yeah. very hardware focused. Everything was very manual. If you wanted to change the way the software worked, you had to literally rebuild it. Then eventually we move on to using software to control the logic and the business flow. That's a big step. That gets too complicated. We create compilers. No one's, and, and by the way, each time we create this layer, it's like all the layers below it almost get forgotten, right. but they're still there. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we have this layer where you have a compiler where now people can write code. The compiler converts that into software that can be run by the machine. Then at some point um, we realize, you know, reading and writing I.O. manually to, to save information is expensive. And we come up with the relational database um, and we come up with operating systems and, and all of these things, all of these layers kind of let you abstract away and not have to think about the layer below it. And all our platform's doing is adding another layer on top of this. So now when you build on our, our layer, you're not thinking about how do I connect to this database? You know, how do I generate this report? Which, which software do I use to manage my input and all these things? It just kind of gives you that next layer to focus on. So that's been, that's been my life as of the last 15 years is this belief that software is ready for this next layer. Yeah, wonderful. Now, in this kind of an approach, particularly when you have a generic interface that can connect and you're saying in a low-code platform and so on, mm-hmm. how does it complicate or simplify debugging? Um, well, like I said, the big thing is you have a lot less code to debug. That's, that's the bigger thing. Um, in fact, I've almost thought about this more, and I think what's so fun about what we're working on is sometimes I can almost like think of ways that I could take languages and almost simplify them even outside of what I've done. But I'll, I'll tell you why we help a lot. First off, we have written our own debugger. Um, so we inside the low, inside our, what we call high impact code, because I came up with that term long before low code came up. But <laughs> we are low code, I guess. We have a debugger. So you can write your code inside of the web browser when you're in the developer mode. You mm-hmm. can put breakpoints, and then when the code hits it, it pauses, and then you can see the state of all the variables, and you can hit continue and all of those things. So we have a debugger. But the big thing is that you're only debugging through the code that you've written. And I know mm-hmm. that's kind of an obvious thing. Mm-hmm. But think of it, think about what's happening when you're using a debugger in like Java or C or any other modern language. If you think about really what's happening is when you have a, let's just say a simple um, if if statement, right? Mm-hmm. Inside there, there's actually a compare that's happening on the assembly level. Then there's a jump clause. There's several things that the computer does inside that one statement. Mm-hmm. But when you debug, you just hit that one statement and it moves to the next statement. It skips over all the little things the computer's doing. That's an important thing. We don't mm-hmm. think about it, but that's an important thing. So, so what we've done is we've said all that code and, and, and let me say, if you look at a piece of software that has a lot of GUI stuff going on or even a lot of data space stuff going on, you're going to see piles and piles of code to maintain, I don't know, colors of cells mm. and, 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 and how, you know, how do you actually move this around and get this on the screen and how do you do filtering and all this sort of end user stuff. All of that is kind of, unfortunately, in most cases, gets mixed in with the business logic. Hmm. So now you're trying to step through the business logic and you end up walking into and stepping out of all this other code that you don't, that you're not interested at that time. You know what I mean? 
And so I've thought about even if you took AMI and 3Forge and you put it away, I think there's actually a space for a language where you could literally say, I've written these libraries and I've I, this library, I know it works and the debugger should just always skip it. Just pretend it doesn't even exist, almost like assembly code. Mm-hmm. And But that's what we've done. So you're never in the debugger. You're never going to step through and be like, oh, this is how the PDF report is adding this because you just don't care. Mm-hmm. Focus on the business logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But from a user's perspective, I've come across situations where uh, what the user sees is, let's say, your dashboard. And supposing they don't, they think something is not right. The first thing they would say is your dashboard doesn't work. Right. Right. Uh, while you can yes. say that, yeah, my code works, but then uh, in an enterprise, when you are integrating with different systems, how do you handle those situations where we will still be able to get back to the user with a reasonable solution? Um, well, I, I, I should say that um, about our product is we deliver a platform, not the individual dashboards. So, okay. okay. Right. So we deliver the platform and then our users will go into what we call developer mode or configuration mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a what you see, what you get sort of thing. But you go into that mode and now you can drag and drop like I'll, I'll put a table here and I'll put a chart here and I'll create mm-hmm. a divider and I'll have this window pop out if they do this. And, you know, all these workflow things and, and I can go into all the features, which gets pretty exhaustive. But ultimately, they build this out. And then they say publish. And when they publish that, now it becomes available for other people to use. Okay. So when people see issues in the dashboard, they should go back to the person that built the dashboard. Mm. Um, now, I will admit, a lot of times they see three forge in the corner and they're like, ah, it's a three forge issue. But that's, you know, just, I mean, whatever. <laughs> the, the, you know, then, then they come to us and we say, okay, you got to talk to the dashboard builder. They can help you work through it or we help, we work through it with them. But yeah. Okay. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, since uh, you work a lot with data, uh, before I get to that, uh, this I'm, uh, I have to ask you this question as to why Three Forge. Is that a story behind the name? There is. So originally, the name of the company was Forge Financial Framework. Oh, okay. um, and there were a few problems with that. First, typing ForgeFinancialFramework.com into a browser is, is pretty lengthy. Second, um, you know, after I started working on this, within a year, I realized. I, this isn't really a financial framework. This is just, this is data agnostic. It be, can be used in any industry. Mm-hmm. So I really kind of wanted to move away from that. And so, and then around that time, they actually started allowing domain names that started with the number. So okay. open, you couldn't actually have a domain name starting with a three. So it made yeah. it very easy for me to get it because no one had it. So <laughs> okay. I got threeforge.com. We, we um, you know, renamed, we, we did a doing business as threeforge.com. Um, and that name is just, it's a lot easier, a lot catchier. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely is a conversation starter. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, coming back to data, you talked about uh, the volume velocity, uh, variability, and the validity. Ah, good. Yeah. Uh, there's probably a W that is being attached to data nowadays, particularly with AI, saying that weaponization of data. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how we could be defensive? We talk about defensive programming, but then when it comes to handling data in real time, no. What are you have any thoughts on how that can be handled? Because increasingly, <coughs> they say that you now the whole systems could be poisoned with bad data. 
Right. Well, this is, yeah, no, you've hit, you've hit a topic very close to, to my heart here, which is the real time aspect of data. And, and by the way, um, I, you also mentioned defensive coding and I'll, I, I could talk about that for a little bit too, and my beliefs on that. But I think, so, so if you go way back and you talk about software or building systems, they actually kind of don't even talk about it too much online. You can't even find it. But if you go back to the textbooks, there's really kind of two ways you can do software. It's either called offline or online. Offline means that you're kind of doing things in a batch mode. Like you want to add up a bunch of numbers, you write a for loop, and you go through the numbers and you add it up. That means you have all the numbers ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Online means that you're reacting as data comes in. That's actually a much more mm-hmm. difficult way to write software, mm-hmm. but it's also critical if you want to do things real time. This is how our systems are built. Almost everything is done in an online approach, which says that our software reacts to data as it's coming in. Our customers, one of the biggest value adds they see is the real-time capabilities of our dashboard. So as data streams in, you can see it on the front end. Um, We monitor a healthy percent of all equities options globally because our, the tier one banks use us so they can take our software, they connect it into their real-time high-frequency trading systems. Mm-hmm. They then they take that, they put it on the screen, they set up different alerts, different thresholds, custom views per trader, and then they sit there and watch that. And when things happen, they can react very quickly. And mm-hmm. and we've literally gotten support tickets where people complain that, you know, why did, why, why did it take, uh, you know, 1.3 seconds for me to see this? You know what I mean? Like that, that's the sort mm-hmm. of speed we talk about here. It has to be mm-hmm. very quick. We shoot for a 30th of a second, mm-hmm. the time data enters okay. to see it on the screen. I think our software is extremely well positioned to do the sort of real time needs that are necessary to protect critical infrastructure. Um, and so we are talking to, to a few government agencies about, you know, how can we help them? That is a very long and difficult sell, I, I, mm. I will concede. Yeah, yeah. But I think our software is very well suited for that. Um, and it's amazing, by the way, how often when we go in to help customers, that as soon as you get this stuff hooked up um, and you immediately start to realize all the issues and, and, and holes and gaps within your infrastructure okay. once you start to hook this up. I've realized something over time that is that is quite obvious, but um, maybe it's worth stating anyways, because maybe not. I, I, after the fact, I'm like, well, this is obvious. Our brains and our eyeballs are very good at moving data. They're actually mm-hmm. incredibly good at mm-hmm. being able to like take data coming in, take that kind of time and, and, and real sense and make information out of it, like videos and things like that. But what's mm-hmm. sad is almost all data that comes up on the screen and almost all desktop solutions is static. You just bring it up and it's there. So it's missing a huge component of like what our brains want. And so I guess what I'm saying is being able to have real-time displays where you can look at information, filter, find, sort mm-hmm. on information as it's changing is really important. But it's also very difficult to write that software. It's Again, it's much more difficult to write real-time software than it is Hmm. batch software yeah so yeah yeah okay uh the other probably topic that i was curious about was uh when you have a piece of software that integrates with other existing software as well as data feeds and so on 
uh, we talk about these supply chain attacks. Uh, so how, I mean, what are your thoughts on securing the supply chain when your platform is used by some other developers? They probably integrate other pieces as well, right? Um, yes. So I will answer, I'll, I'll answer that question up to the limit of my, <laughs> of my ability yeah. to be candid. And the reason I say that is a lot of our users will take our software and use it in ways that I can't foresee or mm. even necessarily know. But from the from the from the platform's perspective, what I do know is that once people start hooking up many different systems and especially real-time systems, the likeliness, the number of possible scenarios for issues compounds exponentially. Mm. Yeah. Like I and, and you could draw a very simple graph. It's like you have two systems, we well, have one connection point. You have three systems. Well, you probably have two connection points, you know, one there, whatever, or three. And then you have 10 systems, and now you have nine plus eight plus seven plus six plus five plus four connection points. So it, it literally is growing very, very fast as you add mm -hmm. more systems. Um, and so our software has to be very, very defensive to go back to what you are saying before. And by the way, I love talking about defensive versus offensive programming. I think it's a very interesting uh, topic. That's, yeah, that's I, we have a few minutes. I think that is a topic that not too many people <laughs> talk about. So if you want to share, yeah, yeah, I'd love to great. talk yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so we, so so the idea is has to we have to have very defensive software. We almost call it an immunity system, mm -hmm. which says we're connecting to this real time system. Mm -hmm. If that real time system um, stops responding, we need to be able to let the users know that there's been an interruption, a connection mm -hmm. in the in the I'll call it our supply chain, which is how's the information getting into our system. Another thing that can happen is if something goes wildly wrong, that system could suddenly burst a million messages in one second. Mm. Um, we don't want to be a slow consumer because a slow consumer for us would slow down the downstream system. Yeah, yeah. So we have to have this immunity in place to never be a slow consumer. No matter what data arrives, it can never bring us down. Um, you know what I mean? If there's delays or things like that, we have to be able to alert. So that's the sort of things we focus on. Um, and, and to go back to the supply chain risk, how our customers use that, I, I, I actually don't. I, you know, it's it's a little different for each use case, but um, I think ultimately it, it comes down to, you know, I think visibility is a big part of it, and that's what we try to provide. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think we've covered a lot of topics, yeah. and one thing that I'm amazed even through the conversation is and of course curious about is uh, how do you manage your time okay. particularly when you said that you like to code whenever and as much as possible but then you also have other responsibilities running the organization meeting customers and so on where your time is not probably under your control well uh, it is it is largely under my control i think mm -hmm. the biggest thing i've focused on is hiring people that i can trust mm -hmm. to do Frankly, all the things that I don't, I, I feel bad to say, but the things I don't want to do. And I don't want to do just about anything. I, I love coding and I love architecting systems. Mm -hmm. And my favorite thing is when a customer comes to us with a problem that can't be solved in our platform. Mm -hmm. That gives me an opportunity to find a way to <laughs> add more widgets and functionality to our platform. Those are the things I love to do. Um, and But yes, you're right. There's a lot of responsibilities. And as the companies grow, very easy to quickly get overwhelmed if I'm not kind of 
half a step ahead. And I, and I, and I use the term half a step because I don't really want to be two steps ahead because then I'm kind of hiring people before they're necessary, mm -hmm. which is a waste of money and a waste of time, lack of morale sort of thing. But the idea is once I start to realize that I'm spending a lot of time on a particular task, now it makes sense to hire people into that position to alleviate that. But now I need to be able to trust them. So, you know, mm -hmm. for all those people out there looking to get promoted and make their bosses happy, I would say the biggest thing is anyone, you know, if you can just take a task and run with it. And if you have questions, you get that list out as short as possible. And you, you know what I mean? You, you, you respect your boss's time and say, this is, this is why I, what I don't understand. Bam, 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 bam. And then, and then you can go and just get the task done. Nothing makes me happier when I see things get done that I didn't have to be highly involved in. Um, at the end of the day though, you know, ultimately all of this responsibility bubbles up to me. Um, you know, it is, it is kind of an unusual thing. CTO. I also do run the company. We don't have a CEO, mm -hmm. uh, but that I, I kind of do to articulate to our customers, how technology focused we are. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am responsible for all of this stuff. So I have to at least be somewhat aware. Um, and, um, you know, I try to put in maybe an hour or two a day on the admin side and the rest of it, I can, I can still focus on the product and focus on the customers and things like that. Yeah. So are there strings, things that uh, stress you? Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of things that stress me. Yeah. Because, well, first off, um, some of our use cases are extremely high, high profile. I mean, I, I, I and, and, it's hard to understand. So, so the way I like to put it is we have use cases where there'll be a dashboard that is managing, let's say, I don't know, 200,000 customer orders. Mm. And the way I put it, I try to explain it, is imagine a, a, a football stadium or, mm. you know, I guess a cricket stadium. I don't know how many people fit in a, <laughs> but right. <laughs> football stadiums, like about 80,000 people, U.S. football. And so now imagine you've got two and a half of those stadiums and they're all staring at this piece of software. And if that piece of software crashes, all those people are going to be yeah. upset. Now, I'm not saying they're staring at our dashboard directly, but they're sending orders into systems that are being mm -hmm. managed and monitored by our dash dashboard. So when there's an issue, it's really our dashboard that comes to save the day. So they can like figure out what's gone wrong and try to get people back up and running as quickly as possible. So that's a stressor in and of itself, just making sure that everything is tested and works correctly. And when it goes out the door, you know, um, someone told me a long time ago that um, at the end of the day, I, I, let's put it, I realized why I love software so much is because it's not emotional. And if it does something wrong, it's only my fault. You know, human humans mm -hmm. have an emotional side. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so dealing with customers that aren't, that um, you know have an issue or don't understand how to use the software or on the fence about something, you know that's a stressor for me because I, I just yeah. want our customers to be happy and understand how to use the software. So, are there any personal practices that you follow to de-stress yourself? No, podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I probably should. Yeah. No, I don't. I just, I just let the stress build up and then I say, "Serenity now." I, I don't know if you watch Seinfeld, but um, yeah. <laughs> anyways, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any good, I don't have any good distressor advice. <laughs> okay. Just, just bottle it up. Just bottle up those emotions and move on. Yeah. But you do come across as a very, very you know, happy person who is not stressed easily. Yeah. yeah I would say yeah. naturally I'm not like a super stressed person. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah.
Yeah. So do you want me to talk about the um, offensive versus defensive program? Sure. 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 So, so it's an interesting thing. So everyone talks about defensive software a lot, but there, there's, I've realized, and this is something that I think is under understated, but if, if you have a block of code and let's say that code is defensive, meaning that at the top, now I know there's, there's now annotations to prevent you from sending in nulls and things like that, but let, let's, let's put that aside. So I've got a block of code and, and I want to make sure, you know, people shouldn't be able to pass in null. They just shouldn't mm -hmm. be able to pass in null. So what I do is at the beginning of the code, I say, if parameter equals null return, something like that, right? So I'm writing defensive code in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea is that just resilient moves on, even though someone's passed in an argument they shouldn't. I would argue that, that you're actually, what you're doing is you're creating another path of complication. Because now, when I see that block of code, I don't know, is it possible that someone's sending null into this? Mm -hmm. I can't answer that definitively. So mm -hmm. there, might be, there might be code out there that's calling this and passing it null, and then we end up returning without issue. And I'm trying to just mm -hmm. give a simple example here, but it can, it can grow. If instead, it just dereferenced that variable or checked, and if it was okay. null, it threw an exception, meaning it's what I would almost call offensive programming. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe not in the strict sense. There, there is a definition for offensive programming, but it's pretty close. So that tells me when I look through that code, I know no one's passing a null. I can eliminate that from my brain as a possibility of the path. Mm -hmm. And so actually writing code that doesn't do all these checks and have like different ways out based on what can be happening, it actually makes it much easier to write code. And by the way, the code runs faster mm. because... I know it sounds very trivial, like how, 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 how long does it take to check for null? Well, not that long, but, you know, removing all those statements and just doing what the code's supposed to, mm -hmm. if it blows up, it blows up fantastically and mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. And then I look at it and I say, dude, what are you doing? You can't pass null yeah. in there. Yeah. Go back and fix it at the source. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? But this yeah. is where I think um, you have to have the team working together and understanding and not blaming and pointing fingers at each other. And so I think I think actually writing offensive code makes much easier to maintain code. Hmm. And I actually think it also makes code that runs a lot faster. Yeah. Interestingly, yes. Yeah. I mean, it seems very simple, but I guess it takes practice right. to get it. Yeah. Right. But then I want to flip it around. You also, you know, and this is where I think the art comes in because you have to look at mm -hmm. each problem and say, is this, should this be defensive or offensive? Like, how should I be building this? Again, if it's code that's going to be accessing a database, there's very real possibilities that there'll be a connection issue or a, or a permissions mm. issue or this or that or these or those. Right now, now you need to write defensive code. I mean, those are those are real scenarios that can happen. You want to catch those and handle that gracefully. Yeah, so I'm not saying everything should be, you know, non-defensive, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful, Robert. It has been a yeah. very very insightful conversation. And thanks a lot yes. for taking the time and sharing your experience. Wonderful. Yes. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client 
and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.